0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full important safety information, visit juviterm.com. Welcome
1: to Tail.
2: Good evening, children of the night. I'm back from a few days in Ohio, thank you, to those who asked. It's nice to be back in the Shenandoah here in Virginia. Managed to get a pickling crock from the Rainersville flea market. Looks like a star pottery piece from Crooksville, Ohio. I mention this because they stamped their pottery with a cobalt blue pentagram. How strange, hmm? But let's get on to our fiction for the evening. Nina Allen was born in Whitechapel, London, and grew up in the Midlands in West Sussex. She studied Russian literature at the University of Exeter and Corpus Christi College, Oxford. She wrote her first short story at the age of six. Her inspirations include Vladimir Nabokov, Iris Murdoch, Joyce Carol Oates, Paul Auster, J.G. Ballard, Robert Bolano, M. John Harrison, Shirley Jackson, Kelly Link, and, of course, Christopher Priest, her partner and first reader. They live and work in the Ta Valley area of North Devon. Her stories have appeared rarely in the British speculative fiction magazines Interzone, Black Static, and Crime Wave, and have been featured in many anthologies, including Best Horror of the Year, number two and number six, The Year's Best Science Fiction, number twenty eight, The Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy, twenty twelve and twenty thirteen, and Best British Fantasy. 2014. Her story, Angelus, won the Aeon Award in 2007, and her novella Spin won the British Science Fiction Association's Award for Best Short Fiction in 2014. Her novella The Gateway was a 2014 finalist in the Shirley Jackson Awards, and the French edition of her story cycle The Silver Wind, published by Editions Tristram as Complications, won the Grand Prix de L'Imaginaire Best Translated Work Short Fiction category in 2014. Her novel, The Race, was shortlisted for the 2015 BSFA Award and for the Kitschke's Red Tentacle. And now, let's hear Nina Allen's The Elephant Girl.
3: Jeannie Henderson arrived in late May. On the morning, Bridget learned she was once again pregnant. Bridget wondered later if that was what started it, if all her reactions that day were a little off kilter. She had already been told about the new girl, who was brought along and introduced to the class by the headmistress. Bridget smiled her best, Hello, I'm your new teacher, smile. Jeanie stared stolidly back at her with unfathomable mud-coloured eyes. What an ugly child, Bridget thought. She's like that fairy at the christening of the Sleeping Beauty. She tried to banish the thought, but it wouldn't go. She'd never taken an irrational dislike to a child before, but Jeanie Henderson gave her the creeps, and as the morning wore on, she found the girl's presence in her classroom increasingly distracting. If her behaviour had been disruptive, she would have known how to cope. As it was, Jeanie sat meekly in the place she'd been allocated, her mouth hanging slightly ajar, her features so immobile, there were moments when Bridget caught herself wondering what would happen if she went up and slapped her. She's like a horrible plastic doll, Bridget thought the kind you get given for Christmas when you're ten and never play with. When she tried asking the child a question, her eyes rolled blankly in her head like stone marbles. Jeannie Henderson had a pudgy moon face and mousy hair cropped in a straight line across her forehead. She was eight years old, a full year younger than most of the other children in Bridget's class. But Bridget had been forced to take her because, apparently, she was ahead in most of her subjects. She was a misfit in other ways, too. It was true she'd had a tricky start. Joining a class midway through term was something even the most confident child would find difficult. But that was far from being the sum of her problems. On the Friday of her first week in school, Bridget found herself staring at Jeanie, and thinking how old she looked a peculiar shrunken old woman with nasty lumpen features and a secretive soul a witch that would slap a curse on you the moment you crossed her (laughs) that was ridiculous of course she was just a child the other children called her the elephant girl jeanie henderson wasn't fat exactly but she moved as if she was stiffly upright as a plump little penguin and with her arms projecting just a fraction to either side. She wore heavy black shoes with square buckles, the kind of shoes that should have had CRIPPLE stamped in capital letters on the lid of the box. It was difficult to stop the other children from teasing her, and on those days when she was particularly tired, Bridget found herself pretending not to notice what was going on one lunch hour, when she was on playground duty. She came outside to find a dozen or so of the rowdier youngsters standing in a circle around Jeanie Henderson and pelting her with gravel. The st- stones bounced off her stomach and thighs in a way that reminded Bridget of the wooden aunt Sally at the county goose fair you could pay to throw steel coits at and win a prize. Jeanie made no attempt to escape or defend herself. Bridget forced her way through the circle and grabbed her roughly by the hand. "'For goodness sake, stop it!' she said. She marched the girl briskly inside. She felt taut with anger. Not so much with the other children as with Jeanie. It was as if she set out to be bullied, as if she deliberately brought the whole thing on herself. Bridget could not get rid of the feeling that Jeanie Henderson was a bad omen and as the term progressed, the idea began to root itself more firmly inside her head. She supposed it was the result of the hormones, the injections she had been given as part of her IVF treatment, and now the knock-on effect of being pregnant. The book said it was normal to feel off-balance during pregnancy, that many women fell prey to irrational thoughts. With the anxiety caused by her two miscarriages, Bridget guessed she would be particularly susceptible. It was frightening, though, nonetheless. It felt a little like madness. The worst thing was her certainty that Jeanie was pretending idiocy to conceal her true nature. In the original Charles Perrault tale of the Sleeping Beauty, the bad fairy came to the christening disguised as a peasant. She blamed the Queen for leaving her off the guest list even though the Queen claimed that not inviting her had been a simple oversight. "Hmm, There must have been a reason, though, Bridget told herself. You don't just forget, people. In the version of the story her class loved best, all the fairies at the christening were named after saints, and the gifts they handed out to the newborn princess were qualities of attraction and magical powers. Sophia brought the gift of wisdom, Agatha granted the power of levitation and so on. Margaret kept a dragon trained to her side like a Rottweiler and promised the princess protection against demonic powers. Cecilia blessed her with the gift of music and divination. The bad fairy had no name and she had been excluded from the celebrations because she was ugly and senile and the only gift she had to offer was her preternatural talent for talking with ghosts. No one wanted to be reminded that the princess would eventually grow old and go crazy. It was said that the royal family was rife with craziness, that the queen herself was already beginning to show the signs. The bad fairy was not really bad, Bridget saw. She was just an unwelcome reminder of what was true. Jeanie Henderson couldn't speak, or at least she wouldn't. Deirdre Myaskoff, who took the reception class and happened to live in the same street as the Hendersons, told Bridget that Jeannie's communication problems had worsened considerably since starting school. She does tend to get picked on rather, Deirdre said. I, I suppose it's inevitable. When Bridget asked her what was actually wrong with Jeanie, Deirdre shrugged and said it was probably a form of autism. She's supposed to be very clever, but then children like that often are. I've been told she plays the piano very well. Bridget listened to what Deirdre was saying, but found it hard to believe. When she was six years old, Bridget happened to see some old TV footage of Martha Argerich performing Chopin at the Warsaw Piano Competition. She pestered her parents non-stop for piano lessons after that. And began to nurture secret dreams of becoming a concert pianist. The first big disappointment of her life came with the realization that she didn't have the talent to make her dream a reality by her late teens. she'd given up music altogether. The idea that Jeanie had what she lacked was somehow grotesque when the school closed for the summer vacation. Bridget clung to the irrational hope that when the children returned in September, the elephant girl would not be among them. But on the first day of term, there Jeanie was, stumbling across the playground in her hideous shoes. She gazed at Bridget without seeming to recognise her, but Bridget felt convinced she was putting on an act. Her anxieties about the baby had eased off a little over the summer. But with her first sight of Jeanie Henderson, they returned in a rush. Less than a week into term, Bridget asked the headmistress if she might request a meeting with Jeanie's parents. The headmistress seemed to think this was a good idea. The child still doesn't seem to be settling the way she should. Perhaps a chat with mum and dad might move things forward. Both the Hendersons had high-powered jobs and the meeting took some arranging. But finally the three of them were together in one room. We're worried about Jeanie's progress, Bridget said. Is she normally this quiet at home? Jeannie doesn't talk much, even with us, if that's what you're trying to get at, replied Muriel Henderson. She prefers to practice her piano. Jeannie's mother was anemically pale, with thin, almost colourless hair. Her voice seemed unnaturally loud, as if she were trying to make herself heard in a crowded room. "'I understand that Jeannie is musically gifted,' Bridget said. "'Have you ever considered sending her to a specialist school, somewhere better suited to her needs?' "'A special school?' boomed Brian Henderson. "'Are you trying to imply that Jeannie is retarded?' Brian Henderson was some sort of scientist, a large man with a florid complexion and heavy jowls. He looked to Bridget as if he were heading straight for a heart attack. He hovered a few inches behind his scrawny wife as if he were trying to use her as a human shield. Of course not, Bridget said. In fact, she's ahead of her class. She fought the urge to hiccup. She'd come to recognise her hiccups, as a sign of approaching nausea, and another bout of the morning sickness that continued to plague her, even though the books insisted it should be starting to ease off by now. When she made tentative inquiries about who looked after Jeanie when they were at work, the wife barked out the name of a foreign au pair. The au pair had already been mentioned several times by both parents, but Bridget seemed incapable of remembering her name for more than five seconds. Her memory felt increasingly unreliable since the end of summer. She'd heard pregnant women described as being away with the fairies. She supposed this haziness with fats was one of the symptoms. She was beginning to sweat. She dug her fingernails into her palms and tried not to think about the slice and a half of toast she'd eaten for breakfast, the butter oozing yellowly-like pus. "Would, Would you excuse me for a moment, she said. "'and hurried out of the room. "'She reached the ladies' lavatories just in time. "'She sank to her knees beside the toilet bowl. "'The close odour of spend urine "'brought her stomach contents rushing upwards in a hot, pale stream. "'She stifled a sob. "'The Hendersons were strange people, "'almost as strange as Jeanie. "'She didn't like them. "'She had been stupid to expect their sympathy.' The thought of them waiting for her just along the corridor made her heart flutter inside her chest like a panicked bird. She stood at the basin and rinsed out her mouth, splashing water on her burning face. When she returned to the classroom, she found the Hendersons standing exactly as she had left them. It was as if they'd gone into suspended animation as soon as her back was turned, snapping back into life only when she was actually there to see them. She realised that Jeanie resembled both of them and neither, combining their least attractive features in a puddingy amalgam of the monstrous. She wondered if her parents loved her, if it was possible to love a child that seemed as unaware of herself as she was of others. She wondered if they ever wished she didn't exist. I'm sorry about that, she said. The two Hendersons stared back at her expectantly. As I was saying, it's not that Jeannie can't do her lessons. It's more that she doesn't mix much with the other children. She folded her arms across her belly and gripped her sides. She wondered what would happen if she fainted. Why would Jeanie want to mix with the other children? said Muriel Henderson. Her voice seemed loaded with sour disdain. Jeanie isn't like other children. Or hadn't you noticed? Other children bore her stupid. She prefers to have discussions with Marialena. Oh, Marialena. Bridget sees the name triumphantly. That's the Aubert. Well that's fine then, Bridget said. The inside of her mouth felt painfully dry. Just as long as you think she's happy. That's the main thing. The encounter had drained her of all her energy. She managed to escort the Hendersons back along the corridor to the main entrance, and then she went in search of Deirdre Myerskoff. She was in the staff room, drinking coffee and catching up on her marking. "'I'm feeling like hell,' Bridget said. "'Would you be able to take my afternoon classes if I go home?' Deirdre, who had a free period, agreed at once. Deirdre Myerscough was 45 and lived alone. She'd had an abortion when she was 18, the unsavoury side effect of a fortnight in Ibiza, a holiday Deirdre described as two straight weeks of accidental sex and intentional mayhem. When Bridget asked her if she regretted the abortion, Deirdre said no. By the time her husband Mick arrived home that evening, Bridget had a raging headache. She didn't feel hungry, but she knew she must eat for the baby's sake. She opened a tin of chicken soup and added some vegetables. The smell of the aluminium soup can made her feel queasy. "'I can't stand that Henderson child,' Bridget said once they were seated. "'She should be in special needs.' She pushed away her half-eaten soup and covered her face with her hands. She'd hoped that telling Mick how she felt would help to disperse her anxiety, but it had not. Is she interfering with the rest of the class? Mick said. If she is, then you must speak to the head. You shouldn't have to take on extra work. He carried on eating his supper, his spoon rising and falling in the bowl like a mechanised tool. Bridget thought with irritation of Jeanie's immaculate exercise books, the dense, crabbed hand that made her assignments look as if they'd been completed in a foreign language. The girl couldn't seem to master joined up writing, but so far Bridget had been unable to find so much as a single spelling mistake. She's not behind, so I can't say anything. I don't want people thinking I can't do my job. She rested her cheek against the polished surface of the table. Its smoothness seemed to block the pain in her head, at least for a while i'm going to bed she said i'm exhausted i don't want you getting upset Mick said remember what the doctor said i'm not upset i'm just tired the doctor had told her repeatedly that she needed to relax that her anxiety was becoming part of the problem she had not exactly accused bridget of sabotaging her pregnancies But Bridget thought she'd come pretty close. Stop fretting about the baby. The baby will look after itself if you leave it alone. The doctor kept glancing at Bridget's records on her computer screen. Her striped green smock stretched tight over breasts the size of cow udders. Dr Buck had four children, two of them already grown and attending medical school. Bridget thought she could afford to relax. She tried to imagine a future in which her visits to Rose Buck's surgery were part of her past. I'll bring you a cup of tea, Mick said. He reached for her hand, pretty tensed. I don't want tea, she said. I think I'll just read for a bit. Well, let me know if you need anything. He brushed her cheek with the back of his hand. His skin was rough. "'corroded by the repeated actions of turpentine and masonry dust. "'It was Mick's overtime on the construction sites "'that had paid for their baby. "'Mick hadn't been out on the town in more than six months. "'He insisted he didn't miss it. "'Oh, but sometimes Bridget wished he would just go, "'not just out with his mates, but away completely. "'Perhaps if she were left in peace,' Her child would survive. An image rose in her mind of Jeanie Henderson coming down the school steps one at a time, seemingly oblivious to the sniggers and catcalls that followed her progress. She's a tough little beast, Bridget thought. I wonder what keeps her going. A child that no one wanted, yet so obstinately insisted on being there. She read three pages of the Kruzza Sonata before falling into a fitful sleep. She kept dreaming that the curtains were open and that people were staring in at her from outside. When she awoke next morning, she felt more tired than she had been when she went to bed. At assembly, the headmistress told the children she had a surprise for them. A former pupil of St Saviour's would be coming to pay them a visit and give a special concert. She's the pianist, Naomi Walmer. Some of you may have seen her recently on television. We're very proud. She was once a member of our school. The children, prompted by Deirdre Myaskoff, began to clap. Bridget saw to her amazement that Jeanie Henderson was clapping too. It was the first sign of animation she'd ever shown. Mother of Bridget could not believe she even had the faintest notion of what she was clapping for. She closed her eyes, overcome by vertigo, the sense that her insides had become the world and that if she didn't climb out of them soon, she would be lost forever. She'd more or less stopped listening to music after her first miscarriage, but she remembered hearing Naomi Walmer on the radio once, Playing the barcarolle from the seasons by Tchaikovsky. The announcer had referred to her as a child prodigy. Cecilia, Bridget thought restlessly, the patron saint of music and divination. The edge of the plastic seat was digging into her back. She didn't know she'd fallen asleep until one of the other teachers nudged her awake.
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
3: The following morning, she and Mick went to the clinic for her five-month scan. When the scan technician asked if they wanted to know the child's sex, Mick looked uncertain. But Bridget answered yes almost at once. It's a girl, said the technician. I'll print you off a photo in a moment. She used a pencil to point at the screen, indicating the baby's heart and lungs, the bunched-together knees, the heart-breaking curve of her spine. Bridget was not surprised by any of it. She had felt her child's presence for weeks now, the baby's sex she had known all along. Elizabeth, Bridget said silently. Elizabeth, Cecilia, Sayers. She had not discussed the baby's name with Mick yet. It didn't feel safe. The technician was still talking, but Bridget found it difficult to focus on what she was saying. She kept her eyes fixed on the monitor, on the flickering point of light that said Elizabeth was really there, and really alive. Are you okay, B? Mick said. He was standing very still, and Bridget had the sense that he was holding his breath. Even though, normally, Mick never seemed to worry about anything. He had always insisted that once a body was ready, things would work out. Perhaps he's right, Bridget thought. Mick stroked her hair and asked the scan technician if everything happening inside Bridget was happening normally. The technician nodded her head emphatically and then said yes. There's really nothing to feel anxious about, Mr Sayers. At this stage, you should both start thinking of this as just an ordinary pregnancy. She asked Bridget about her morning sickness, and Bridget said it was very much better. There were questions she wanted to ask, but she held them back. When the only question that mattered could not be answered with any absolute certainty. What was the point of asking anything else? The first miscarriage had happened just ten days after Dr Buck confirmed that Bridget was pregnant. She still grieved for the child, but secretly, as if admitting that it had ever existed was a source of shame. Her second failure had happened at 18 weeks. Mick came home from work to find her curled up on the bathroom floor covered in blood. She'd lain there for what seemed hours, terrified that she was bleeding to death, and that her half-formed baby was tracking itself towards her across the tiles. That child still haunted her like a revenant. She couldn't help believing she had let it down. This third child had hung on inside her for 20 weeks. Everyone insisted it was third time lucky. She had lunch with Mick in a cafe near the clinic and was back at school in time for the junior book club. They were reading Roald Dahl's The Witches. The children sat in a circle on the floor while Bridget read aloud and asked the children questions. Jeanie Henderson sat slumped forward with her legs apart and her head lolling in a manner, Bridget found faintly obscene. She could not get rid of the thought that Jeannie was staring at her swollen belly. She wants to take my baby, Bridget thought. I know I must be crazy to think that, but, but I know it's true. Deirdre Mylescoff had told her that the Hendersons were moving abroad that Muriel Henderson had landed a post at some foreign university. Bridget hoped the move would happen soon. She felt certain that if they were gone before Elizabeth was born, then everything would be all right. That night, she dreamed she was sitting up in bed, in what she thought was her bedroom, but turned out to be some sort of hospital. The room was filled with the sounds of people sleeping, Their snuffles and groans were frightening in the darkness. There was someone close by, perhaps a nurse. The nurse pressed a button in the side of her head and the light came on. We can't have you nodding off, she said, not when it's time for her feed. Bridget recognised the voice of Dr Buck. That's not the real doctor, she thought. It's a copy. Her bulky body loomed beside the bed, A wicker basket stood nearby on a metal trolley. "'Are you ready?' said Dr Buck. She tugged at Bridget's nightgown, exposing a breast. Bridget tried to ignore what was being done to her, because she knew she needed to concentrate on the basket. Dr Buck kept forcing her back against the stack of pillows. "'There's nothing to be afraid of,' she said. "'Just try and relax.' She turned aside. Pale rounds of her fat cheeks gleamed in the half-light as she leaned over the basket and reached inside. She lifted out a squirming bundle and held it towards her. Bridget felt her terror rising. She knew her baby had been taken away and replaced with a monster. The thing in the doctor's arms was white and naked like a grub. It opened its mouth in a blank, wide scream, and Bridget saw it meant to close upon her breast. She tugged at the blankets, in an attempt to cover herself, but the blankets were gone, and so was her nightgown. The creature thrusted towards her, swivelling its bulging head on its fat white neck. "Maggoty," said Dr Buck brightly. "'This is one hungry little elephant!' Bridget's eyes filled with tears. She found that she could no longer move, that she was attached to the bed somehow. In the instant before she woke, she realised that the thing in the doctor's arms was Jeannie Henderson. She lay there in the darkness, heart-pounding. Her face was wet with tears, but she couldn't get away from the thought that they were not real tears. They'd strayed over from the dream, which meant that At least part of the dream must have really happened. She shuddered. She drew her arms across her belly and breasts and found that she was naked. She couldn't remember taking off her clothes. An image came to her of the fat white doctor tugging at her nightgown, hot hands groping. It was three o'clock in the morning, always the worst time lay unconscious and faintly snoring at her side. It came to her that Jeannie was out there somewhere. That she was responsible for her nightmare. That she had made it happen. Why, though, Bridget thought. Why would she do that? The answer came back at once. Oh, because she's jealous. She wants the whole world be as ugly and awful as she is. She used out the drawer of her bedside cabinet and took out her iPod. She put on the headphones and switched to radio. The World Service came on, a programme about the pianist Maria Udina. Udina had made radio broadcast from Moscow throughout the war. She'd even dared to argue with Stalin about the existence of God. Bridget didn't believe in God, not really. But she thought she could believe in Saint Cecilia. She listened to Eudina playing Bach's chromatic fantasia and tried to imagine what it had been like recording Bach's music in a tiny basement studio while German soldiers poured over the border in a dull grey flood. It's what Saint Cecilia would have done, she thought. She could almost believe it had been St Cecilia herself who had given Eudena the strength to stand up to whatever the world and its tyrants happened to throw at her. The thought calmed her, and she was soon asleep again. When she woke the next morning, her iPod was on the bedside cabinet. The headphone leads wrapped neatly around its shiny body. She supposed it must have come adrift in the night, that Mick must have picked it up off the floor when she asked him he said he hadn't touched it. Naomi Walmer's visit was the lead item on all the local news programs. A news team came to the school and made a short film that showed Naomi Walmer arriving at the school gates in a navy blue citron. After that the photographers went away because the headmistress hadn't wanted them filming inside the school. The seniors had decorated the lobby as part of their term project. There were pictures of Naomi Walmer on stage at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. Images from her CD covers. Short essays on the life of Chopin or Metna or Naomi herself. There was a photo of her as a junior at St. Saviour's, sitting on the floor of the sports hall at morning assembly. A wafer-thin, nervous-looking child, with an appealing smile. The headmistress made a little speech, welcoming Naomi back to the school and to the new assembly hall, which hadn't yet been built when she was there. Afterwards, Naomi came on stage and played Chopin's Opus 34 waltz in A minor. She was wearing a shift dress in plain blue cotton, and Bridget couldn't help noticing the way it showed off her arms, graceful and white smooth and polished-looking as the arms of a porcelain ballerina. Her hair was fine and curly and amazingly fair. It stood out around her head like a corona. Bridget had expected her to play something light and cheerful. But the waltz was almost painfully slow. The children sat and listened in what felt to Bridget like an uneasy silence. One of the senior boys... A shy child, called Graham Stokes, who was president of the school chess club, started to cry. The tears on his cheeks looked sticky, like melting sugar. Faintly, and for the first time, Bridget felt Elizabeth kick. Oh, this can't be real, Bridget thought. She wrapped her arms around her belly, wanting to seal the moment in with her forever. She could still hear the music, the long meandering coda that always seemed to her like the sounds of someone talking in their sleep. She had been able to play the piece by heart once. Hearing Naomi Walmer made her realise all over again how fruitless her efforts had been. But the difference was that this time, she didn't care. She shut her eyes. She could feel a presence in the room. A compassionate, all-knowing soul that was as old as time. Cecilia, she thought. Cecilia, in the body of Naomi. She came to me after all. But it was never me she wanted to speak to. It was Elizabeth. She thought she might faint with happiness and terror. After what seemed like a long time, the music stopped. Some of the other teachers started to clap. I'm sure you'll agree that was very wonderful, said the headmistress. It's not often we have such magic in our midst. Magic, Bridget thought. That's what this is. The children filed out of the hall and the headmistress whisked Naomi Walmer off to the staff room. It had been arranged that she would spend some time with each class in turn. The children were restless, high on the break-in routine. Bridget handed out drawing paper and a variety of crayons, and told them to make thank-you cards for Naomi. There was a lot of swapping seats and excited noise. Only Jeanie Henderson remained quiet. She sat hunched over her desk. Scribbling intently with a plain lead pencil, when Bridget passed by on her way to the station we cupboard, she saw her paper was covered in musical notation. It was the first thirty bars of Chopin's opus thirty four number two. What are you doing, Jeannie? Bridget said. We're supposed to be making cards. She snatched at the paper, wanting to get a closer look at it. Jeanie Henderson pulled it away with a little grunt. The corner of the paper tore off in her hand. The girl at the next desk looked across and stifled a giggle. The little freak, Bridget thought. How did she do that? Jeanie Henderson gazed up at her, open-mouthed. Her eyes were like mud puddles. Bridget suddenly realised she was crying. Don't get yourself in a state, she said. I'll fetch you a fresh piece. She turned away, for some reason terrified that Jeanie Henderson was about to start screaming. At that moment, there was a knock at the door. Hello, everyone, said the headmistress. I've brought someone to see you. I hope Mrs Sayers doesn't mind us interrupting her lesson. The children whispered and fidgeted, as Naomi Walmer came to sit in a chair at the head of the class. The girls in the front row sighed, as if in the presence of majesty. You won't remember Naomi from when she was here at school, said the headmistress. She started playing the piano before you were born. Naomi Walmer stayed, and answered questions for the rest of the lesson. At first, it was only the more talkative children that would speak to her. But by the end they were all doing it, shooting their hands up and talking over each other, in the hurry to take their turn. Bridget had to tell them twice to simmer down. Jeannie Henderson stared blankly into space. The torn piece of drawing paper lay discarded on the desk in front of her. From time to time her lips twitched. When the bell went, she got straight to her feet. "'stumbling after the others in her shapeless dress. "'The elephant girl's coming to get us,' said Samantha Stevens, "'a pouting beauty with wavy auburn hair and the beginnings of breasts. "'Let's run!' "'They poured out of the room and down the corridor in a noisy stampede. "'Bridget was left alone with Naomi Walmer. "'I'm sorry about that,' Bridget said. They're a little on the boisterous side today. Oh, you mustn't apologise, said Naomi Walmer. I thought they were fantastic. She stepped forward and took Bridget's hand. Thank you so much for having me here. It's brought back so many memories. Good ones, I hope. Oh, yes, I loved it here. Close to. She still looked very young. "'hardly more than a child herself. "'And yet her hands, Bridget could feel, "'were strong as a man's, "'and there was a quality of separateness about her "'that Bridget found almost frightening. "'It was as if she could sense the music "'curled inside Naomi Walmer, "'the way Elizabeth was curled inside herself. "'When's it you? she said. "'She glanced down at Bridget's belly and smiled.' Not long now, Bridget said. Just just under eight weeks. You must be very excited. Yes, Bridget said. I am. She realised it was the first time anyone had spoken about her pregnancy so openly. People were afraid of upsetting her, of, of saying the wrong thing. Even Mick had stopped trying to communicate with her on anything more than a practical day-to-day level. She knew this was her fault, just as she knew Mick still loved her. But Naomi Wong's innocent remark seemed to open up the world to her. Her words were like a blessing, like a gift. It made it possible for her to believe that Elizabeth was really going to be born. She showed Naomi Walmer the way back to the staff room, and then went out of the side door and onto the playground. It was a marvellously bright October day. The sky was stretched tightly above the rooftops like a swathe of blue cloth. Children chased each other across the tarmac, or sat together in groups beneath the trees. There was no sign of the elephant girl. And for the first time ever, when she thought about Jeanie Henderson, Bridget felt a twinge of remorse. If only Elizabeth can be okay, I'll find the courage to start from the beginning again with Jeannie. Courage? The word puzzled her until she realised it was true. She had never hated Jeanie; She had been afraid of her, frightened. She could harm Elizabeth by her very existence. She made her way back inside, meaning to go in search of Jeanie and bring her outside into the sunshine. Suddenly, she became aware that she could hear music. Somebody was playing the piano. Bridget followed the sound along the corridor and right up to the closed double doors of the school assembly hall. She pushed the doors open, suddenly, nervous. The tall windows along the side mirrored themselves in pools of light across the parquet floor. Jeanie Henderson was seated at the piano. She was playing a waltz by Chopin. Not the slow A minor, but its partner, the much faster Opus 34 in A-flat. Her stubby fingers flew across the keys, the knuckles bunched and raised, hands crouched above the keyboards like fat spiders. She played effortlessly, as if the very notion of the piano was something that had been invented for her own amusement. Her mastery of the instrument seemed complete. Her clay face wore the same blank expression as always. Prigid marched towards her, her shoes skidding on the polished wood. As she approached the stage, Jeanne finished playing and stood up from the bench. Frederick Chopin was born near Warsaw on March the 1st, 1810, she said. His compositions make extensive use of Polish dance rhythms, such as the Polonaise and the Mazurka, People say he invented the nocturne, but the nocturne was actually invented by John Field. Her voice had a gravelly quality, like that of a very old woman. She slowly put out a hand to touch Bridget's belly. Your baby likes music already, I can tell, she said. Your baby will be just like me. Bridget slapped Jeanie hard across the face. The slap made a cracking report like a gunshot. And for a second, Bridget saw the imprint of her fingers outlined in red across the girl's plump cheek. How dare you, she said in a whisper. That's a lie. Then she felt herself begin to bleed.
2: That was Nina Allen's The Elephant Girl, as read by Margaret Essex. Margaret Essex lives on the beautiful, far south coast of New South Wales, Australia, with her long-suffering husband, a happy hound, and the cat who rules. She spends time gardening, seed-saving, cheese making, making music, and loves to be at a table of food and wine with friends and family. That will be our show for the evening children of the night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.